Hi, it's Ariana. Hi, it's Greg. As a listener to Climate One, we know you care about how climate disruption is affecting all of us now and into the future. I'm guessing you already do several things in the spirit of climate action. Here's another one. Giving a donation to us to continue bringing you shows about the causes and solutions to the climate crisis. You can do that at climateone.org slash donate. We offer all our podcasts and radio shows for free, but it takes time, effort, and resources to produce new episodes every week. When you give, you help us pay for the talented staff, equipment, and materials we need to make the show. And you'll join a group of other dedicated funders and community supporters who keep Climate One on the air. If you're inspired by the guests and conversations we curate, please consider making a gift today at climateone.org slash donate. Thank you for your support, and thanks for listening. How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. California has some of the best places on Earth for harnessing the sun's energy. While panels are being installed on the roofs of homes and businesses around the state, the solar scene is about to enter a new chapter. In recent months, California regulators have approved construction of six massive solar plants that together can power about a million homes. After decades of fits and starts, has solar finally hit the big time? How many jobs will be created by California's solar surge? And what else needs to be done to help the states reach for the sun? We have an expert panel here to discuss those questions and more with our live audience in San Francisco. Karen Douglas is chair of the California Energy Commission. John Woolard, CEO of Bright Source Energy. And Lisa Hoyos is California director of Apollo Alliance. Please welcome them to Climate One of the Commonwealth Club. Welcome all. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, Karen, let's begin with you. Uh, why this sudden burst of activity, uh, all these big plants uh, being approved in the, in the last few weeks in California? Well, there are a couple reasons for this, this incredible breakthrough here in California. One, I have to say, is California's longstanding commitment to renewable energy, our renewable portfolio standard in AB 32. And, and another is the Stimulus Act and, and the incentives for solar energy and for renewable energy in the Stimulus Act. And let me just explain that. We're focused on reaching decision points on projects before us on time for developers to bring the incentives in the Stimulus Act to California. But if it weren't for the fact that we had a renewable, por- por- a renewable portfolio standard and AB 32 sending the signal that California wants renewable energy, they wouldn't have been there with projects, in some cases, in the process already when the Recovery Act passed. So, so this is the culmination, I would say, of many years of effort in California. So some of these projects may have, were in the pipeline already. Absolutely. And the, the, the Recovery Act, the stimulus plan comes along and provides some money to kind of get them over the, the hump or get, make them economic. Is that fair it to certainly, say? It certainly makes it much easier. The, the, the 30% tax credit um, or, or payment in lieu of tax credit is an incredible incentive. The loan guarantees make financing much easier. And all of that in an, in a, at a time in which financing is quite difficult for virtually any kind of business is, is an incredible boost to the industry. Well, well John Willard, um, you've probably been planning this plant for, for quite some time, the Ivanpah, which received final approval last night, I think. Um, give us a sense of, of uh, how the Recovery Act, was it important to that? And give us a sense of the scale of all this solar activity that's happening. Sure, thanks. The first thing I, I maybe we'll start with is the scale and then talk a little bit about what we're doing. But when I look at the scale of a lot of what we need to do, it's, it's fairly daunting. We've got to build across the world uh, basically a gigawatt per day, which is a nuclear plant equivalent every single day for the next 40 years in order to decarbonize the power supply and, and to get to 450 parts per million. Some people argue for a, a lower number than 450 parts per million, which would mean even more. Uh, so we've got a fairly daunting task of how many carbon-free power plants. It could be nuclear, it could be wind, it could be solar. There are lots of options on the table, but the scale is fairly large. Uh, in the U.S., that number is reduced to a much more manageable uh, gigawatt per week or a nuclear plant equivalent per week. 
we didn't do one last week, we didn't do one the week before, um, so we're falling <laughs> a little bit behind. Um, so the scale, if, if not thought of properly, can be fairly daunting. Now, part of the good news is there, and Karen's alluded to this, and I'll, I'll go into it a little more, as you look at, there, there's a perfect storm of, of policy and a lot of good things that are actually enabling things that have been uh, working their way through the pipeline for a while to start to move forward. So. It takes time to build anything. We think of it as decades and gigawatts. Uh, it takes a long time to think and plan ahead. We started our particular plant, Ivanpah. Uh, we started some of the, the early activity in 2006, so well before the, the, the stimulus and any of these other activities. And to get a plant permitted and go through all the processes and finance and all, everything that needs to get done does take three to four years. So it takes some time to get plants uh, through a very rigorous uh, California and U.S. permitting process. Once you're there, then you can start construction, and that's where we are now. We're able to finally start construction of the first facility uh, called Ivanpah. And, and Lisa Hoyos, scale, what about jobs? How many jobs are going to be created by the construction of these plants? Give us a sense in the overall California economy. Um, how many jobs are going to be created? Uh, so first of all, thanks so much for, for having us all here today. Um, there's 10,000 megawatts of renewable power in California currently uh, competing for, for federal funds, and it's a direct result of AB 32. And the total public and private investment is uh, around $30 uh, billion, and the estimate is that'll create 15,000 new jobs. Um, longer term, AB 32 If they were total, all approved, right? Okay. Right. Uh, this project, as I think was mentioned, will create a thousand construction jobs in an area that has been hardly hit by the recession. The the um, unemployment rate in the state of California is twelve and a half percent right now. In the two county, well, in Riverside, San Bernardino counties, it's fourteen point five percent. And in the construction sector, due to the recession, for the past two and a half years, it's been at around thirty-five to forty percent. So when I spoke the other day to the building trades leader down there who worked very closely with Bright Source Energy and Bechtel, the contractor who's going to build the project, they said this is completely stimulating and giving hope to a sector that's been um, really hit hard. And these are middle class jobs with benefits and pension, retirement security, health care, the kind of jobs we want to grow in California. So this is really, he said, the future of their economy down there not just this, this project, but all of it. He literally said they're in the epicenter of um, commercial solar development down there, and, and that's their hope moving forward. So let's drill down a little bit on, on scale. I'm having a little trouble. Gigawatt, I don't, you know, nuclear power plant, I understand. A gigawatt, I'm not sure I can wrap my round, head around what, what a gigawatt really is. And Karen Douglas, a couple of, I believe it's six of these plants add up to just a couple of gigawatts, right? So give us some sense of we can get our handles on, on the scale that, of the projects that are being approved and what we need to do. So, John, I'm going to hand this one to you. So six of these plants or, or nine of these plants, how many gigawatts would you say it is? So, so one megawatt is enough to power uh, something like 750 houses. So I think we calculated that a single plant, that one of the smaller plants that we permitted, the Beacon plant would be enough to would produce enough energy to provide the residential power needed for, say, uh, medium-sized or smaller-sized county, but re residential, for, for, for a smaller-sized county, but residential alone. Now, I haven't added up. You, you see, we've got the, the power plants before us in the queue, and these are, these are nine power plants so far. Six we've approved. Three are still waiting. Three right. are still in the process. This is about... 40% of the number of renewable power plants that are going for the ARA deadlines in California that are not under our jurisdiction. ARA so there's another the recovery. ARA recovery, so, uh, recovery Act, so they've got to get under the gun, under the right. wire by the end of this year right. to get the federal money. So, so there are actually about 49 plants in California, renewable energy projects, trying for the federal deadlines. And I've never added up how much energy that is. It's, it's, a, it's a tremendous amount of energy and a tremendous amount of investment to the extent that it, that it comes through, and I think a lot of those projects will come through. And what happens after the federal funds expire at the end of the year? Well, if projects don't get their approvals and either start construction or spend a certain amount of money according to federal rules by the deadlines, they won't be eligible for the credits. They, they may get their approvals. They may still be able to get financing and move forward, but they'll have lost a tremendous opportunity. 
John, I read that you have, what, 14 plants you want to do by 2016 or so? So some of those, one you got under the federal program. Some of them are not going to have the benefit of federal funds. How are the economics mm-hmm. going to work for you going forward? Yeah, I think, well, if you look at what our total commitments are, we've got 14 power plants uh, to get constructed between now and 2016. And that's roughly, just to come back at that scale uh, question, that would be around 6,500 jobs over over the duration of those. And the uh, if you look at the total number of homes powered, it would be on the order of a million homes or so. Uh, those are the two largest commitments by any utility. Uh, Southern California Edison committed for 1.3 gigawatts, which is 1.3 nuclear plant, roughly a nuclear power plant equivalent. And uh, PG&E did the same. Uh, if you look at uh, how that transpires relative to policy, it's really important for that the poli- you know, one of the challenges in U.S. policy is that it's sometimes with energy been very short term. It's been, ironically, long term and perpetual for fossil fuels, but short term and extended sporadically for renewables. So I think one of the most important policy aspects is to give, you know, there have been tax credits and incentives in, uh, in, in fossil that have lasted for 50 to 80 years. Will never. You, you got to really know where to look to find them in the tax code. <laughs> Whereas, uh, you know, renewables, you know, the production tax credit for wind was only extended for a while, one year at a time. That's right. And now they finally extended it out through uh, two years. But it really, we need a longer time horizon, not just on the the grant piece, but on uh, some basic structure that gives uh, renewable developers, utilities, and the financial community clear guidelines over a, a fairly long period of time. So I'd say at least five, more likely 10 years is reasonable. For to extend the investment tax credit, or what specifically you want five it, or 10 years? I'd say any policy. If you look at uh, so all, all of the above, if you take any policy, think of what a developer, a utility, or anybody who's going to build a plant has to go through. It's a five to seven year cycle. So if I'm doing something that takes five to seven years between permitting and construction, negotiating all the contracts and the power purchase agreements, and yet I've got policy that only jumps forward two years at a time. I've got a, a, a very dysfunctional environment. So I think all energy policy ought to be thought through in terms of, you know, at, at a minimum five, but ideally, you know, kind of 10-year horizons, because that's the horizon for building anything of size. This is not a California Energy Commission domain you control the tax code or that those firms, but do you agree, Karen, that certainty that the developers really need more I, I agree. It's, it's terribly damaging to extend a policy and then reverse the policy. And, and if you do that too many times, developers feel burned. They, they invest their own money trying to respond to a policy by bringing us something that we say we want, like clean energy. And if, if the policy is reversed and they're burned, they, they might not do it again. And we, we really need to send a stable signal to developers to bring us these projects that we need and that we want. In the state of California, has been uh, fairly strong in doing that. There, there have been some shifts in renewable energy policy, but, but I would say that in the state of California, we've done a far better job at sending a strong and consistent signal that this is what we'd like to see. Well, has uh, business and state regulators and even labor gone to the federal government and say, look, we need more certainty on this? Um, we had a member of Congress here once who confessed that they know they're going to extend those things, but they don't like to do it long term because it makes the budget look bigger. And, mm-hmm. and it, it's basically, that's the game that's being played, right? They, but it, that's, you can't bank on that. But you could, they're probably going to be renewed, but they don't want to do it long term because of the politics and the, and the optics of the deficit. But if you... that, that's, a, that's an inconvenient truth. That is, <laughs> that is the way it works, and that is uh, part of the problem. So you do have... Uh, short-term budgeting horizons and scoring. And I think what we need to do, there are ways to, it's possible to remove a long-term subsidy from fossil and make it budget neutral with something from renewables. There are ways to, to balance this, but uh, certainly that the easy way is to just extend it a little bit and pretend it's smaller than it is. The smarter policy is to move subsidy out of things we want less of and move it towards things and more clarity for things that you want, we would like more of. Well, what would you take away from, from fossil subsidies? Because some people say that you guys, you new clean guys, are getting an unfair advantage already. Uh, the incumbent energy providers, I've heard this argument from them saying, you know, look, they kind of don't know or say that their fossil fuels are subsidized. And they look at 
clean tech startups as, as getting a sweetheart deal these days? Mm-hmm. Uh, ironically, one of the biggest subsidies out there is there's a 90% depletion allowance for oil and gas domestically. It's the only thing available to me or anybody in the audience as an individual. If you want a, a tax credit, you can't get one for renewables as an individual. You have to go invest in a natural gas uh, or a, a natural gas or oil facility to get that tax credit. So there are a lot so of things like this. That means if, if, uh, if I'm Jed Clampin and I got oil in my backyard and, and, I, and I take it out, that, that I get a tax break for the depletion of that You resource? get 90% in the first year as a deduction. So if I invest $100, I get $90 back in the first year as a, uh, as a tax deduction. Nice. More than you get in. That's, more, <laughs> that's larger than the, uh, say, the investment tax credit or other things for solar. Lisa, has, has, has labor weighed in on these, these economics, uh, try to engage the policy realm and say, if we had this, these kinds of long-term things, it'd be good for jobs? Definitely, both at the federal level and, and then at the, at the state level, there's a, a group called um, CURE, which is California Unions for Renewable and Reliable Energy. And they've done a lot of advocacy at the state level to create the conditions for these plants uh, to go in. And they're particularly pushing hard on the renewable portfolio standard to try to get us up to 33% renewable energy here in the state by, by 2020. And as you know, and I know I've talked about on your show last week with the governor that the, um, the bill has died, but there is renewed hope it could come up in special session. And if not, it's going to be labor's top priority in terms of um, our renewable advocacy next year, nothing's more important than that, because it allows, um, creates the conditions for the kind of development that's happening that Bright Source Energy and other companies are driving. Well, let's talk about the renewable electricity standard, renewable portfolio standard. How, John Willard, how much of your uh, projects are banking on that to, to drive demand for your project? Well, all of our first 14 projects are already contractually committed. So the utilities, to answer your question, are doing it because of the 20% and the 33%. Uh, drivers. So they've been given very clear direction at 20%, less clear, but it's clearing up direction at 33% that renewables need to be a significant part of the portfolio, and then they enter into contracts with groups like ours. And but that 33% is still just an executive order. It's not a law, but you're saying the utilities see the way the wind is blowing, and they, they want to start contracting for the supply for when government says you've got to do this? Exactly. They are looking at this as something that is, uh, the signals are clear, and certainly they know that if, even if the 30% number changes in time a little bit or something, the trend is very clear that the PUC and the people of California want the mix of renewables to, to increase, and so they're taking it very seriously. And, and I care? should add, if I could just step in, that the 33% is not just an executive order. It's also in law uh, under regulations put forward by the Air Resources Board. Okay. under AB 32. So the 33% is now put forward as a law under our climate laws. I think all of us would, would like to see a bill and would like to see this have the stature of statute. But I would say the 33% requirement is, is fairly well established right now. But that, what's the difference of a law? I mean, I mean, I understand executive order can be repealed by the next governor, which is a possibility. But in terms of the utilities, what, is, what does a law do that an executive order and these ARB regulations don't? So executive orders bind executive agencies. And so the governor, if he issues an executive order, it's directing agencies to take certain actions. It's not directing utilities to take certain actions, for example. Regulations passed under AB 32 very much have the power of law over, over utilities and over any regulated entities under the regulations. So the, the um, benefit of a statute is that you would have, is that laws are generally harder to change than regulations, and so the stability of the um, implementation is, is more assured. But that being said, all laws are ultimately implemented through regulations. And, and so I, I think the most important point is that 33% is where the state is. It's where the state will continue to be. There, there's no dispute frankly, between the parties negotiating the RPS bill about what the target should be. The dispute is more over how to get there and, and what the right mix is. So I think 33% RPS is where California is. What would you say to developers and business people who say it takes too long, there's too much red tape in Sacramento to get these projects uh, approved? What would you say to that? 
Well, I guess I would have to say, watch us. In the yeah. last year, we've approved six. We've, we've, we, the, the Energy Commission, under the Warren Alquist Act, is supposed to approve plants in 12 months. We've always tried. Um, the, the permitting process tended to take longer, and I think John would say, in his case, took quite a long time. But with the ARA projects and the deadlines and, and the realization, frankly, that this was a tremendous opportunity for the state to foster a new wave of renewable energy development in California. We tightened up our process. We prioritized the renewable projects. We permitted some in um, fewer than nine, one in, in around nine months. And, and um, everything that came to us in this last year, these nine projects are, are going to be, actually eight of the nine will be out by the end of the year. John, I'd, like to, is, I'd like to add something. Is it too slow and painful to go through the permitting <laughs> process? No, uh, well, what we went through, uh, to be frank, and Karen, I would agree to this, was slow and painful for both because it was yeah. the first one through. And we had the fortune or misfortune of being the first one through a new process with both the CEC and the BLM. But I can clearly say that, uh, and this unfortunately benefits some of my competitors more than it benefits me, we watch the process get better and better and legitimately improve every step of the way. So I, you know, I fully expect that the next ones will be smoother, faster. I've seen it with others behind us. So we had the uh, fortune or misfortune of, of being the first one through uh, a lot of this, uh, of size and scale. This is a di it's different from the typical plants that the CEC would be approving, a natural gas plant with a small footprint. This involves uh, detailed biology. It involves a lot of different things to think about. So uh, I think what's important is, as uh, long and painful as it might have been, I think everybody learned a lot and everybody's better prepared to do it, you know, to improve it over time. How would you change it, make it better, even faster, smoother? So far, I, th I think if I watch what some of the other groups behind us are, are, are benefiting from, it's gotten better. It's changing. So I, I don't know if there's any single thing uh, that I would do to, to change it. It's making sure the agencies understand the issues, making sure that the uh, agencies and the developers all focus on identifying things earlier, that sometimes things were fleshed out because you're the first one through late in a process that everybody can now recognize sooner and deal with. But I, I see no reason it can't get done in 12 to 18 months with the right, with a professional package on the developer side and then professional treatment at the at the CEC. I think that's right. The Energy Commission is, is at this point, committed to 12 months, and, and something, sometimes things take longer. And, and I, I should say something about our process. It's an adversarial process. Uh, staff and applicants put in evidence about the potential impacts. There may be interveners. If there are serious issues, it, may take time, it takes time to work through the issues. Uh, with solar plants of this size, and let me just give you one example. Um, the Beacon Power Plant. It was actually the first one of these that we permitted. One of the smallest, the second smallest. Um, its footprint is twice the size of Golden Gate Park. And so if you imagine looking at the impacts on a plant of that size and consider that the site is likely to be graded, certain, almost certain to be fenced, um, you've, you'll have drainage issues, you'll have biological issues, you'll have potentially cultural resource issues, you'll have... You'll have water issues potentially. So, so there are very hard substantive issues to work through in order to mitigate the environmental impacts and have an optimal design. And so many of the plants that went through our process, and, and certainly Ivanpah is one of them, changed in the process, got better. The impacts got significantly less. And um, there, was, there were, in some cases, fairly substantial mitigation packages necessary to make it work. Karen Douglas is chair of the California Energy Commission. She's here with John Willard, CEO of Bright Source Energy, and Lisa Hoyos from the California Apollo Alliance. Uh, we're discussing clean energy at Climate One. Uh, lessons learned from this first, this most recent batch of approvals. I'd like to get Lisa in here too, in terms of labor, business. Um, what do we learn from this 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 chapter of 2010? These big projects, Lisa. Well, definitely that, that renewable energy is, a, is in the clean energy economy is California's best job growth engine. I, I use the example already of, of one of the most economically depressed areas in the, um, in the state getting a big jolt in terms of high-quality jobs. I think also it, um, 
this process is indicative of the future we have to build together to grow the clean energy economy. You know, the clean energy jobs are growing 10 times faster than any other sector of our economy in the state. Um, we, are, we have 12,000 clean energy businesses in our state. I think this is one significant part of the statewide landscape about how we need to fully put our energy behind um, opposing Proposition 23 so we can continue to realize the benefits um, of, of AB 32, which is expected to generate in the next 10 years over $104 billion in investment and, and other economic opportunities in our state. We're already the um, clean tech capital of the country with two-thirds of um, venture capital, clean energy venture capital. So we just have to keep on keeping on, and this is a great example. The, the litany of approvals we've had in just the last week, it's the wave of the future, and we can't let the Texas oil companies stop it. What else did we learn? John or Karen? I, I think the biggest lesson we learned was to engage as early as you can with all the important constituents. And so we engaged with, with uh, labor early. And if you wait until the last minute to engage, it, it becomes challenging and complicated, but if you have an open dialogue very early in the process, I think that helps immeasurably. Uh, on the environmental side, we engaged a lot with uh, environmental groups with, uh, and particularly groups, I think, NRDC, Greenpeace, were, you know, there have been some very thoughtful input and, and some of what we did modified some of the project along the way. Did it make it more uh, efficient, more cost effective for you? Center for Biological Diversity, uh, Defenders of Wildlife, these guys came in and said, well, this is not good, this is not good. So we shrunk part of the footprint where there was um, tortoise habitat in the back. We did our best to respond to all the different uh, issues. But it, you, know, you try to engage in a productive, as productive of a dialogue as you can as early in the process. And uh, some of the best insights we got were, you know, if you really think carefully about the issues, some of, of what Karen mentioned around you know, soil getting moved around, you want to move as little as possible. So doing things with no grading, uh, or minimal grading with low impact construction techniques and a little, you know, think about the, the resources we, we, we designed around air cooling, which ultimately cost a little more, but it uses 4% of the water of a, of a wet cooled solar project. So you're taking, you know, somebody else would have to use 24 times, the, 25 times the water to produce that same output if you didn't incorporate some of these technologies. And I think thinking ahead about, you know, what's, what's right, you know, don't use too much water in the desert. Work as much as you can with labor. Think about these things early. Um, help you get through what's always going to be a long process. Karen, lessons learned? So I would say a couple things. You know, I hope people take from this experience that when, when push comes to shove and, some, and a really important opportunity comes along, government can get it together. I think at the beginning of this process, there was tremendous skepticism about you know, if, if the Energy Commission didn't drop the ball, maybe BLM would. And if BLM didn't drop the ball, then maybe another agency would. And, and something would have to go wrong in, in the process of reviewing these new power plants and, and dealing with this new joint process with the federal agencies. And with high-level leadership and support from Secretary Salazar at Interior and BLM and our governor's office and our legislature and commitment really from the top levels all the way through the rank and file of the agencies, we, we did get it together and get the job done. So I think that's a really important lesson for me coming out of that experience. And, and there was, I think John could tell you, skepticism and concern in the earlier days of this. I think another important lesson is that you can permit and build renewable energy in California. There was a myth perpetuated, I think, for a long time that you can't build this and you can't do that in California. And I think we've cut our way through that convincingly. And finally, we've learned a lot, all of us, about how to permit, how to review, how to consider impacts of solar power plants. I think round two, when it comes, will be better. I think developers will bring us better projects, will be more sophisticated, as will interveners and, and the public in terms of reviewing its, reviewing its impacts, and we'll make the process work again. Was there a project that you thought is, is a model project in terms of how they did it, in terms of where they cited it, how they engaged with stakeholders? What was the easiest one to, to, to sort of pass through the system? Well, the one that passed through the system certainly the most quickly and with the least controversy was, in our case, probably the Abengoa project. 
it was one of the smaller projects. It was on um, private land and disturbed land, so it didn't have the habitat value of some of the land that, that some of the projects were, were built on. Um, it was located in an adjudicated water basin, so the water issues were simpler that, that the project faced. Um, the, speaking more in the abstract, some projects find that there are important or many cultural resources on the site. Some projects find uh, that there are important biological resources. Really, site selection is incredibly important, and then aspects of, of project design. John mentioned dry cooling. Wet cooling in the desert is, is hard to justify. There are instances. Two of the projects that we have approved so far used wet cooling. Abengoa, because it was an adjudicated water basin and there was a clear water right and there was, there was appropriate mitigation. Um, really, you know, if you can grow alfalfa <laughs> with water, you know, can, you, can you produce renewable energy? And um, in that case, we, we analyzed it, we approved it. Uh, in another case, um, there was the, the project owner created a new water supply through water reclamation. But in general, wet cooling in the desert is a very bad idea. <laughs> Let's do a brief tech primer. To wet cooling, dry cooling of what? Yeah. Uh, so uh, walk just briefly, what sort that of yeah. Is. As you take, uh, you're, you're taking a field of mirrors. You're heating up. You're using the sun's rays to heat up water, turn it to steam, then superheat that steam run it through a turbine. That turbine turns, produces power, takes that power to the grid. And then you have to condense that steam and turn it back into water. So wet cooling means you use a lot of water to cool that steam, condense it, so that the steam itself is in a closed loop. It needs to get recycled in a way. Mm -hmm. It needs to come back in. But you're using a, a lot of throughput of water to cool it, and that water disappears. You, you basically lose a lot of water. Dry cooling is a lot like your car's radiator. So think about just lots of fins, Exposed, lots of metal surface area exposed to air, so you're getting that same cooling benefit, but you're not using water to do it. And my favorite uh, water fact to make things sort of accessible is if you look at uh, what we're doing at Ivanpah, it's, it's 400 megawatts of power, so it's roughly 150,000 homes of power, and it's the water consumption of about 300 homes, or one hole on a golf course. Wow. John Willard is CEO of Bright Source Energy. He's here with Karen Douglas, chair of the California Energy Commission, and Lisa Hoyos from the Apollo Alliance. We're talking about solar energy in California. So if it's so clear uh, California has a water crisis, water, a perpetual water shortage, can the Energy Commission say no wet cooling, no water, period, or is that too, too drastic? Coming out of these projects, we're going to launch a lessons learned process um, so that we can learn from stakeholders and so that we can look at our projects that, that we have approved and, and possibly any that we do not approve and um, refine our policies. We have a water policy. The Energy Commission has a very strong policy discouraging the use of fresh water for, for cooling in power plants. Um, we, we see a need to revise that water policy to deal with desert issues. We, we were never thinking about renewable plants in the desert when we thought about that water policy. Um, my, my own opinion, without having gone through the process of setting a policy again, is that the water is scarce and precious in the desert. It's rare to find that you can pump a lot of groundwater in the desert and not have significant impacts. And, and there's clearly a better way because some, some plants are out there doing it. I'd like to add one point to this, which is uh, water cooling is also used in fossil plants. So, and water's not just scarce in the desert, it's scarce in California, right. in the West. So refineries, and, oil refineries use water, a lot of water? No, no, a, a, a coal plant, a coal natural plant. gas plant, a lot of uh, nuclear, a lot, I mean, you got to, right. anything that uses steam uses it. So water is not just a it's, a, it's an issue that ought to be thought through across any um, source of power. In a way, it's a subsidy, <laughs> once again, to, you know, if you, if, if, you know we're, we're doing the right thing by not using it, um, and it but it costs something. Yeah, some people refer to nuclear power plants as yeah, big, expensive tea kettles or heating, heating water. Um, Lisa Hoyos, let's talk about the supply chain. We're talking about water as an input. Um, made in the USA, where do the pieces come for these projects? Upstream, other than construction, uh, let's talk about the jobs and, and the manufactured goods that might go into these plants. 
Yeah, well, one thing that uh, is notable about John's project uh, is that you, I understand, have about 60% of your component parts uh, coming from domestic manufacturers and all over the country. And, and as California Apollo Alliance, we really want to um, bring back manufacturing to our state of California. California is the largest manufacturing state in the country. Uh, and nearly one quarter of all green jobs in our state are in the manufacturing sector, so we want to grow it. And there's a couple of things, and I know um, Chairperson Douglas is probably going to be sharing some of them, but there's a couple of best practices here in California, and one I would just like to flag, and she could say more about it, is called the California Clean Energy Business Financing Program that will provide more than $30 million in low-interest loans to California manufacturers for clean um, clean energy prod products and systems and, and parts. And um, the other thing is transportation, and I don't know if we're going to be talking about that at all in, in the, the mix of renewable conversation here today, but um, the Apollo Alliance has a major study happening right now called the Transporta Transportation Manufacturing Action Project, and the goal is to look at things like high-speed rail, which are coming to California, and do an assessment of what are the manufacturers in the U.S., and particularly in California, that could sort of reconfigure themselves slightly to be then manufacturing the component parts and the rail, and where does the steel come from? And so there's a lot of supply chain analysis that progressive organizations are looking into because it's not actually just the deployment of energy, but of course all of the all of the component manufacturing that goes into it that will enable us to capture jobs. And uh, maybe in, um, in closing on that, stand, uh, stronger renewable standards could support nearly 100,000 uh, new manufacturing jobs in California across 5,000 firms. And we all know that small business is our largest employer, so we really need to um, create the conditions to, to grow that. John, did you pay more for uh, US-made inputs? Sometimes. Sometimes you end up paying more, but we also net it out on transportation and others. So they're local benefits. I think, you know, on average, we, we, we still have to deliver low cost, so, but there's some things that cost a little more. Uh, frankly, a lot of it's worth it. Uh, I mean, I, you know, our country's in a, in a tough position right now, and so we do whatever we can whenever, you know, it's always a huge benefit of the doubt to a U.S. manufacturer, but we still have... Uh, you know, costs that we need to, there is a global marketplace. The good news is we can compete in it. So we are competitive. I think that's, that's actually a good message in this. People think of the U.S. as not being competitive somehow. We've got, uh, you know, you look at whether it's the um, boiler manufacturing, some of the steel, certainly all the, the local labor content, a lot of the pumps, a lot of things come from various uh, mirror, uh, the mirror manufacturing. Uh, so we, we're forced to look on a global marketplace, which is good discipline, but the good news is we are actually, uh, can compete. How about on the, on the labor side? I know that, that I think the labor groups want a lot of these jobs to come from, from California, local jobs first, mm -hmm. and, and what does that, whereas, you know, what does that mean to, I guess, workers in Nevada, tough luck, or, you know, I want to talk about sort of the sourcing, and are we being parochial in terms of if we're sourcing inputs globally, how about the labor side of that? I think the labor movement at the national level with AFL-CIO and the National Building Trades Council, how, just a quick quick primer on how labor is organized, is we have state federations of labor in all of the states, and we have building trades councils in all the states, and then national representation in Washington. And this whole mantra of wanting to build and expand the clean energy economy is filtered through all of those. So the goal would be, yes, let's take leadership and grow local jobs in California, but let's do the same thing in Nevada, let's do the same thing in Ohio, let's do the same thing in Michigan. And so uh, we really want to develop, expand, and share best practices around the kinds of policies that create the conditions. Again, I keep talking about creating the conditions to grow these jobs, and AB 32 is, is absolutely the winner, and we want AB 32-like policies to pass in every state and obviously at the national level because that's how we'll grow jobs. But a lot of these places in the desert are on the border of Nevada, on the border of Arizona, and you know, does it really make sense to confine the jobs just to Californians for, for sites that are in the desert close to Arizona or Nevada? You know, is that, is that 
structure of those organizations where the Californians are working about California jobs, the Nevadans are working about Nevada jobs, Arizona's working about Nevada, you know, is there, should we be looking at these regionally the way the power comes yeah, regionally? I just want to say something about that. Um, so, as was mentioned, there's a project labor agreement on the project with Ivanpah, for example. And that means that the Building Trades Council is coordinating with all of the trades. There's 28 different crafts working on this project, from boiler makers to, to electrical workers to surveyors to plumbers and fitters. And so all of those folks come together under this master agreement. And there is local hiring first. And we talked about the uh, economic recession, how hard hitting it is in that area. Once they preference the, the local workforce, um, then they move beyond, but it's all coordinated through this master agreement. And there's also just a, a noteworthy thing to mention, which they also have a, a program within the project labor agreement called Helmets to Hard Hats, which was negotiated with the National Building Trades and the Department of Defense to also create job opportunities for uh, returning veterans who are oftentimes confronting very um, hard employment situations. And so that's another piece of it. So yes, grow California jobs, and once beyond that, go uh, there. But the Southwest is a huge market for solar, and so there's a lot of jobs that are going to be springing up in Arizona, Nevada, all those mm -hmm. areas you mm -hmm. mentioned. Okay. So um, I, I think I would like to jump in here. You know, I, I strongly agree with the sentiment expressed, and, and the Energy Commission is supporting workforce training in California. We help put together the largest clean energy workforce training program, state program in the country. We strongly support California clean tech manufacturing, which we offer the low interest loans for. And so we've provided low interest loans to eight companies making uh, photovoltaic panels. And they'll produce enough to, for, for 500 megawatts a year, will be their production capacity um, due to these loans. Um, we we've strongly support um, California research in clean technology, and um, our, we, we have the largest state-funded research program, our D&D program, for clean energy technologies here at the Energy Commission, the, the PEER program, Public Interest Energy Research, and the AB 118 program, which is for clean fuels and clean technologies. So we strongly support this. We think California is absolutely a leader, um, but in terms of my vision of how the, the grid should work, how the electricity system should work. I'd really like it if we had the capacity built in-state to export solar power during the day and import wind all the way from Wyoming, Wyoming if needs be, or Canada if needs be, during the winter and during the night. Um, you know, the, in Canada, their season when they use a lot of power is the winter because of cooling. In California, our season when we have peak demand is in the summer because, of, uh, because we air condition, they heat. Um, so I think there are inescapable efficiencies from looking at our power system on a regional level and maximizing the benefit of the renewable energy resources in each part of the West in order to make the entire system cleaner, greener, more renewable. Um, that said, we have a very strong commitment to projects in California, and as we've demonstrated this past year, we, we intend to make it attractive for companies to come here and build here. Well, let, let's discuss that regional vision, because uh, it sounds very appealing is, you know, to import wind when there's excess wind in one place and export solar when we have more than we can use in California, and I think uh, Canada could be part of that in certain seasons. That sounds very appealing, but a lot of the state structures and agencies only care about their little state. And right, the public utility commissions in each state, their job is to look out for the consumers in that state. And then you have the federal level, and they're, you know, so who's going to be the referee of that food fight among all those states about who what gets exported when, and, and then who builds the infrastructure to make that happen? Well, negotiations on who pays for the infrastructure are, are always hard. And, and they happen. It's happening now. Um, I, I think the infrastructure is being built. It's being built slowly. And it has to be, we have to put this together mindful of the fact that we in California can produce a lot of renewable energy. It's not only the large scale, uh, utility scale solar plants in the desert. We've got tremendous capability for distributed generation. We can put solar panels on commercial buildings. We, we've got solar panels on houses. We've got tremendous capability in California. We've got um, smart grid 
outlays in the state. The Energy Commission has funded Smart Grid to the tune of around 10 to $15 million a year. Because of this leadership over the past few years, California brought in about $1.7 billion for smart grid deployment throughout the state from the stimulus money in competitive solicitations by Department of Energy. So we're leaders here. We've got tremendous capability here in California, and we should feel able to compete. John, we'll let's get you in here in terms of this regional vision. Do you see state-by-state uh, state obstacles? I mean, you imagine you build a plant in Nevada if you got a good deal there. No, there, there are tremendous obstacles, and it goes all the way back to the Federal Gas Act and the Federal Power Act back in the 30s. And uh, what happened, if you look at uh, natural gas, we can cite natural gas pipelines uh, federally, and we've cited 12,000 miles of that in the last decade. You can't do that with power lines, and we've only done 600 miles of power lines. So 600 miles versus 12,000 miles over the same time period. And you look at natural gas markets, and it's, they're efficient. You get, and it's good for the ratepayer, it's good for everybody. You start to get, the, the, the resources can move around. Excuse me. Right now with power, you can't move it around. It's like running interstate commerce without highways and rails. So unless you can build a transmission system that helps move that power around, California's got, as Karen mentioned, fantastic sun. We've built out a lot of our good wind. So you want to be able to move uh, the resources around, and until we can do that, and transmission's the biggest enabler of that, until we can do that, we're going to uh, pay more, and it's not going to be very efficient. So it's good for the people of California, the ratepayers, to get um, a, a good level of regional interaction to go where the resource is and bring lower cost power in. John Willard is CEO of Bright Source Energy, discussing climate change and clean energy here with uh, Karen Douglas, chair of the California Energy Commission, and Lisa Hoyos from the Apollo Alliance. Let's go to some audience questions. If you'd like to, uh, to line up at the microphone, we invite you to uh, line up there, and then the line can go back. Uh, Behind that, we'd ask you to, yep, sure. So, um, yes, sir. Uh, there has been a, yes. There has been a real surge in natural gas fired power plants in California. Hang on one second, sorry. Do we have that mic on? Okay. So, this, uh, there's a surge in solar, a surge in natural gas, uh, and the Energy Commission has, uh, I believe, permitted all of them. Undermining the states um, is, is natural gas undermining the states' uh, higher priorities for efficiency and, in this case, renewables. Um, Karen, is, you're you're a fan of gas, or at least <laughs> you, you're, you. Anyways, I, I, I'm actually glad you asked that question because I was hoping it would come up. We have right now about 45 percent of the power in our system comes from natural gas, and nearly 20 percent comes from imported coal. The state has made a commitment to get off of the coal dependency. And so the, the, the long-term coal contracts that, that the utilities have are going to be allowed to expire and are not going to be renewed. And in some cases, the utilities may be able to get out of those contracts early. Um, we've got a strong commitment to get out of coal. So, so that is there. Um, nearly 65% of our mix is fossil. Um, even with a 33% renewable energy standard, Meeting that standard is going to take a tremendous commitment, tremendous effort, tremendous investment by ratepayers, and 33% is just that part of portion of our system. So we've got the other 77% of our system that we've got to worry about. On top of that, much of our natural gas fleet is old. A lot of it was built in the 50s or the 60s. It's very inefficient. It's expensive to run. It's heavily polluting compared to what the newer plants can do. And finally, natural gas is an ideal source of fuel for firming and shaping load. So let's say, if, if you believe, as I do, that we should be on the road to 50% or more renewable beyond 2020, that, that we need to green our system as much and as fast as we can, and you still want, as I do, <laughs> people to be able to turn the lights on and have them come on 24 hours a day, we have to have the fossil backing up the renewable. It's true that we're, we're pushing technology change as fast as we can 
through smart grid, through storage, through potential uh, use of uh, fuel cells in some cases as storage, through um, expanding the electrical vehicle infrastructure and possibly using those batteries in the vehicles either during their life in, car, in the cars or after as part of the storage. There, there are creative solutions here and it's a good thing there are because the only way, I, I really believe, the only way we get to the clean, green, functioning, reliable, um, relatively affordable or <laughs> affordable electricity system that the state wants and needs is to move as fast as we can on all fronts. We, need, we want the large central, central station solar plants. We want to push distributed generation, solar, smart grid, technology development, and for a while longer, natural gas. Now what the, uh, for a while longer meaning potentially a significant amount of time because so much of our fleet is, is actually very old and inefficient. I, I, I do think there, there will come a time when the Energy Commission, based on its environmental analysis and, and looking in particular at the greenhouse gas analysis, which is part of what we look at when we permit power plants, may say that this power plant especially where it is, does not perform a critical function for our system and should not be permitted. But we haven't gotten there yet in part because so much of our system really does need to be upgraded. Next question, please. Um, hello. Uh, I was wondering like, how we could apply any of these learning lessons or best management practices of these large uh, desert power uh, plants to what may become the second solar surge in California using all these uh, large areas of rooftops for mini power plants. And I'm not talking about sort of a PV installation on the Moscone uh, Conference Center, but I'm talking about rooftop uh, installations of factories, shopping malls, parking areas for industrial steam, domestic use, or, and, or energy uh, production. John, you're going to go to rooftops? Oh, our technology won't, but I think what, you know, rooftop uh, PV and, and rooftop solar is critical to, to, to move forward. So some people frame solar as a, as a big, as one single entity. There, there are different characteristics. You've got rooftop solar, which can be distributed, and the cost is going down of photovoltaics. That's very good news. Uh, you can do it now. You know, homes are going to be expensive because of the integration with the roof. Uh, but you know the commercial rooftops, the the bigger you know Southern California Edison's doing. I think it's 250 megawatts down there of, of rooftop broad rooftop solar uh, on a lot of warehouses and a lot of uh, there's a lot of good real estate out there. Um, the but challenge is it just doesn't add up to it. You need to do so many different things. So we need right. to do a lot on the rooftops. We need to do a lot of uh, solar thermal. We still need to do wind. We need to do other. Pieces and they have different attributes. And back to the natural, to tie this with the natural gas piece, you know, for all, uh, intermittent renewables, wind and, and photovoltaics, you have to have natural gas is a very important part of backing it up for reliability because we still expect the lights to go on. Uh, but solar thermal has we use natural gas at that plant itself, so you don't, you don't build a second power plant. You can be what's called a self-firming renewable with a very small amount. We use two to two to five percent. But these, these all interact. So you've got a system with some level of wind, some level, as much as possible of photovoltaics, um, solar thermal with that firming capability, wind that then needs to be firmed with natural gas. And the one time we've ever screwed things up as a country was think of this as a portfolio. And when we went long coal, we had a portfolio that was out of balance. We had 50% coal. We had a problem. Now we're trying to detune and trying to, so you don't, there's no single answer. There's diversity. Diversity is really important in this mix. Yes, sir, next question. Hi, my name is Wayne Van Dyke, and I would like to reiterate John's point with regard to the financing or the requirement for incentives and the financing of power plants in the technology or new, new technology areas with a little brief story. In 1978, before the, first oil, or before the second oil embargo, I started a company to demonstrate that renewable energy technologies could work on a utility scale, raised tens of millions of dollars from Chevron, put together over 1,000 megawatts of large-scale wind energy projects with companies like PG&E, Southern California Edison, Hawaiian Electric Company, the Bonneville Power Administration, and brought in companies like United Technologies, Boeing, and 
General Electric to build the equipment and was in the process of financing $2 billion worth of projects when Ronald Reagan was elected president, mm. killed the tax credits, and all of those manufacturers went out of the business, and the business migrated to Europe, and today the Europeans dominate the large-scale wind energy industry. That's what happens when you do short-term thinking. Right. A lot of zigs and zags in U.S. policy. Both parties are, are you know, guilty of that across administrations. No. You know. uh, Karen, we're about to go from one governor to another. Is California going to be able to stay on course, or even if Jerry Brown's win comes in, is he going to come in and say, look, I'm going to throw out a bunch of stuff and reinvent it and put my stamp on it? Well, I think one, California's environmental policy has been remarkably stable over decades, unlike and in strong contrast to the rest of the country. Uh, we, we had the first clean air laws. We had the first clean air regulations on vehicles. And our California Air Resources Board is still pushing the envelope and coming up with new clean air policies because Californians like clean air. The Energy Commission in 1978 rolled out the first efficiency standards for appliances and buildings. We're still doing it. We, we regulated uh, um, refrigerators so long ago. The, the manufacturer said it will put us out of business. You know, they, they lobbied. They campaigned very hard against us. Um, refrigerators today are cheaper, bigger, have more features, and way more efficient. We just regulated TVs. Major battle with the Consumer Electronics Association. And, um, and you, you may have so read about California will keep the course. California yeah. has, you see, the reason we can keep the course is we have public support. The public supports clean energy. They support alternatives to oil. They support renewable energy, support clean air, and that isn't changing. Lisa? I just want to add to that to underscore the questioner's point. The, the person, um, Bill Perez, who works so closely with BrightSource, who heads up the building trades, who's in the Mojave Desert, said he grew up there. And this is a quote, a quote from him. He said, there's been false starts in the Mojave for 25 years. It was a growing industry back in the 1970s. And then the feds pulled back all the renewable tax credits. And we saw a rapid decline. And we can't let that happen again. And he said that in context of the need to um, you know, protect and promote AB 32. And the reason why, I hope some of you in the audience have this, but the reason why the California Apollo uh, Alliance created this program to um, keep creating clean energy jobs in California is because we created in response to Meg Whitman's statement over a year ago that her first day in office, she would uh, suspend AB 32. And so while I agree with what Karen said about our innovation, our history, our leadership, you know, we saw a huge spike in venture capital investment because of AB 32. And so we, we really have to keep that going. We got about 10 minutes left. Next question. We got three questions. Let's try to get all three. Yes, sir. Going back to the, the short-term tax incentives, you mentioned that being a huge challenge. If that were to change and we had long-term tax incentives similar to uh, the uh, hypercar- uh, hydrocarbon industry, what would that look like in terms of overall development as well as the, uh, the business environment for renewable companies? Would it dramatically change? And if so, how, how would that look? Oh, it would, it, it would dramatically change, and, and here's why. Uh, unpredictability and risk cause the financial world, for one, to price things, you know, to price your debt and your equity at a premium. So you pay more for just borrowing the money if you have any sort of risk around projects that there's going to be changes in law, changes in things. So stable long-term policy, uh, as the gentleman pointed out earlier, was the cause of our wind industry going overseas uh, years ago, and it could be the cause of of other industry uh, not working as well in the United States as it could. What we do really well here, I, I, there's not a country out there that's better at developing technology. Mm-hmm. We do a great job of developing technology. We actually know how to build companies, but then we don't have stable and predictable markets. We, our policy does more to screw up our markets than to make our, help our markets function with clarity. So a lot of the markets are evolving for, for clean tech in Europe, China, other places, and that to me is the big risk because where everything's getting built is where a lot of the intellectual capital starts to develop. So if they're building more wind and more solar in other areas, then smart people go there. You know, we start to lose that global race and that global positioning. So I think there's a cost of capital argument, but there's also this intellectual capacity that you want to reinforce. And you can you learn so much more building things in your own backyard and doing things in your own backyard. And, and to me, back to AB 32, AB 32, this all ties together. To me, AB 32 is a job creator, and I can tell you, I could give you 15 companies that exist today because California said, here's what we're going to do, here's why we're going to do it, and here's how it's going to happen. 
And to me, it's an argument about do we want to be efficient as a society or inefficient? If we're going to take away things like AB 32, we're saying let's be, it's like coddling our car industry and you get a dysfunctional industry. We need to, if we want to compete mm -hmm. globally, the world is headed in a way where carbon matters and efficiency matters. And to me, that's why AB 32 is absolutely critical. It's a huge job creator. And, not, and, and having AB 32 go away uh, would basically, I think, reduce that job creation engine dramatically. And it's the opposite of the way I think some people are understanding it. Thank you. Got two more questions. Yes, sir. Uh, just about the 33% mandate. Uh, will we reach that mandate just with solar, wind, and geothermal? Or will it require the construction of new nuclear power plants? I believe strongly that we can reach that mandate with wind, geothermal, solar, and um, the, the qualifying renewable energy resources. Yes, sir. Uh, my name is John Thomas. I'm with a newsletter called The Mad Hedge Fund Trader. Uh, <laughs> on your new um, uh, power plant, what will your uh, all-in cost per kilowatt hour be, both on a subsidized and a non-subsidized basis? And also, um, what was the most obscure part of your application process? I remember. I'm from Tiburon, and red-legged frogs proved to be a really big deal there. Um, did you run into something similar in your application process? Yeah. Uh, you know, I think the application process is amazingly thorough. So you uncover every, everything that, that could be out there, uh, cultural, biology. I mean, there are all sorts of, uh, of issues. Frankly, nothing was too obscure. It was just there were some things that we thought of as, as, as core and central that we're working on and thinking about, such as the biology and things that were more peripheral. But uh, I think more importantly, that the first part of your question was around cost and, and, and the, the size and scale of things. We're not allowed to, under the PPAs, to divulge the actual cost, the power purchase agreements. But the way I would frame it is we tend to think of a, of a natural gas peaker, because solar occurs during the day when, when demand is high as the bogey or, the, or what we're shooting for. We're very close to the cost of a natural gas peaker. So a natural gas peaker, you know, the, the, the way California values power is it's about three times as valuable during the day as it is in the evenings because of the fact that we use more then. And so we fire up these peakers for very short periods of time. So that's really what we look at as the, the benchmark, and we're very close to, to those costs. I'd like to just finish up on, on drilling down a little bit on, on the land question. We talked about public-private land and disturbed-undisturbed land. I want to tease that out a little bit to get a sense of, you know, should developers, Karen Douglas, be looking at only disturbed land, which I think means that there's, what, some human activity already? Or in what cases would undisturbed land be okay for these big projects? And we'll get I, th I think developers should look at disturbed land. They should look at abandoned agricultural land. They should look at land that has been used for... Um, other uses, in, in one case, in one of our projects, it was used for military training for some time. In one of our projects, there was some land that was used for off-road vehicle riding. All of that, unfortunately, has already reduced the biological value of that land, and so you'll find it easier to site projects on that land. However, some of the projects that went through our process on relatively undisturbed land, and, and I'll take the Blythe Solar Project, for example. Blythe is the at 1,000 megawatts uh, will be the largest plant in the world um, when it's built. It's, it was on primarily undisturbed land, but it was of less habitat value. So I would say the most important thing is to look at the habitat value of the land. Um, if it's already been used for another purpose, it's likely to be very low. Um, but there are a number of factors that would go into that consideration. What's your water supply? What are the other uses of the land? It might be relatively low value biologically, but it might have an important cultural value. Um, so, so you've got to look at a wide range of factors in putting a project together. John Willard, you're doing 14 plants. Are you looking at disturbed, undisturbed land? Does the mm -hmm. undisturbed land or disturbed land cost more or less? Uh, the biggest challenge is having enough land in one right. spot. But we look at uh, public land. We have private land. You have to look at uh, everything. And we've actually got some that's in the state, some that's outside of the state. But it's all focused on 
how do you make sure you can deliver into the California system? So do you, yeah, does that mean you look to proximity to transmission? It's all, yeah, it's really transmission driven. So since transmission is the, uh, the most dysfunctional and the hardest to solve area that, that limits a lot, your siting's all driven around uh, how you can get access to, to the existing grid. All right, I think we're at the, uh, the end of our time. Does, does, does labor probably doesn't matter where, where it's sited? Well, you like it sited near job centers, right? Or where people live? Right, but, but the one thing I learned that was very interesting about the Ivanbrot project is that the workers working on it, um, because it is sensitive land, are getting really high-grade, cutting-edge training on how to, how to do things better, how not to idle your trucks, how to make sure that no invasive species come in on people's shoes, how to make sure that nothing gets done on the project. Um, attract predators that would hurt tortoises. So there's um, sort of a green upskilling that these workers are going through, and it, it fits into um, making sure that we do our best when things are, are sited in sensitive areas. We're at the end of our time. Our thanks to Lisa Hoyos from the California Apollo Alliance, John Willard from Bright Source Energy, and Karen Douglas from the California Energy Commission. Thank you all for coming to Climate One today. Thank you. Uh, <clears throat>